Hi, this is Spider-Man, and I'd love to stick around and listen to amazing spider talk, but Madam Web just told me Doc Ock is about to kidnap Mary Jane Watson, and well, a spider's gotta do what a spider's gotta do. Too many who know the angles, uncover and untangle, all the questions and the webs left out to tangle. In Welcome to the Amazing Spider Talk. My name is Dan Gavazdan, and I'm the founder and editor of SuperiorSpiderTalk.com. Thanks for joining me for a special episode of our weekly show. If this is your first time joining us for this podcast, we hope you enjoy the podcast and that it provides an intelligent conversation between me and several Spider-Man creators as we hope to look at the Spider-Man comic universe in a bit of a bigger picture. And if you enjoy the show, please be sure to subscribe to our podcast feed to hear more. For this episode, I'm joined by some special guests from Spider-Man the Animated Series, everyone's favorite Spider-Man television show from the 90s. So let's not dilly-dally, it's time for the interview. Again, everyone, Dan Gavostin here for the Amazing Spider Talk, and today I'm joined by two very special guests. Uh, our first guest is a returning friend of the show from two years ago. He's an accomplished screenwriter, producer, and story editor of some of your favorite animated television series, which have allowed him to work with creators like Jim Henson, George Lucas, and Stan Lee. He's the producer and story editor of Spider-Man, the animated series, and probably friends with you on Facebook. Welcome back to the show, John Semper Jr., Hi, Dan. Thank you for having me. I am excited to be here again, and I am excited to be here with Spider-Man himself. So this is going to be a fun day. Yeah, I, I thought about our next guest just asking him questions as if he was Peter Parker, but uh, our second <laughs> guest is probably more familiar to most of our listeners as his voice has left an indelible impression on generations of film fans, television watchers, video game players, and a large part of the population that wears pajamas on Saturday mornings. He's probably not your friend on Facebook, but he has he was the voice of Eric in The Little Mermaid. He portrayed Greg Brady in the Brady Bunch films, favorites of mine, and uh, enjoys long walks on the beach and has been the voice of Spider-Man more times than I can count, most notably in Spider-Man the Animated Series. Welcome to the show, Christopher Daniel Barnes. Hey, Dan. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. And uh, just note, I only do American icons. You know, I only do Spider-Man and Greg Brady and Prince Eric. So uh, <laughs> that's, that's my resume now. <laughs> Is that by choice? Have you turned down a lot of international icons? <laughs> yeah, that's right. I, I only do Disney icons and uh, Marvel icons. I think it's funny. My career has sort of uh, lent itself to these uh, these wonderful uh, uh, roles that have this fantastic lineage to them and have sort of, you know, 
uh, spanned decades. It's it's incredible. It's a real honor, and I'm just thrilled to be a part of any of it. Yeah, and from a very young age too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I started acting when I was eight years old, and I uh, started uh, in New York actually with uh, television commercials and print jobs and that type of stuff. And then I uh, came out here for a. A television series I did called Starman in 1986, and then uh, it just sort of snowballed from there, and and the rest is history. But uh, yeah, it's just been a, a real interesting career, and it's been real wonderful to uh, to have had the opportunity to be a part of some of these projects, uh, like Disney, Prince Eric, and, and like Spider Man, and and the whole Brady thing. To uh, to be a part of these these characters and these projects that have uh, have sort of endured for a lot of time and, and have a sort of a, a following of people that it is that they've influenced so it's, it's it's been it's been a real pleasure that's really cool uh you know uh, chris you've expressed in interviews that you were a big uh spider-man fan growing up and that you collected comics uh, can you remember your first introduction to the character or the marvel universe and and any stories that perhaps hooked you on on this fictional world well you know i loved comics uh growing up as a kid obviously spider-man was my favorite character um i I think it was because Spider-Man, to me, I've said this before, Spider-Man is sort of the, he's the conflicted uh, coming-of-age archetype. Uh, And I think that's why so many people relate to him. I think that's why he's sort of the conscience of Marvel, and even in the, for instance, the new Civil War, uh, or even the original comic line. uh, He's the one that I think most people relate to uh, for that reason, because he's, he's always in turmoil. And how many of us are actually, you know, not in turmoil? We're always sort of struggling and thinking and contemplating. And Spider-Man is that voice. And uh, I think as a, as a you know, child and a young, young uh, teenager growing up, that, of course, appealed to me. Because, uh, uh, you know, Spider-Man was one of these characters that, you know, he was not the sort of Cold War hero, you know, uh, Superman, the sort of perfect, sort of distant Olympian figure um, that was sort of unattainable. Uh, Spider-Man was very, you know, real. He was very uh, accessible and uh, very relatable. And um, uh, I think that 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 qua- those qualities of the character uh, just really drew him to a lot of people. And that's uh, so why I was, of course, you know, I loved the character as a kid. And so growing up uh, uh, reading so many of the comics, I always had his voice in my head as I was, you know, reading the comics. So I think that that sort of naturally translated when I went to audition for the, for the role. Um, I was thrilled. I was utterly thrilled. I said in one interview, I was, uh, I was like Will Ferrell in Elf. I was like, Spider-Man! It's Spider-Man! I mean, I was absolutely out of my head with, you know, thrilled that I was going to be auditioning for this character. It's a good thing you didn't use that voice. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and uh, and I, I, it had uh, sort of been a part of me growing up. So when, I, when it came time to do that, I was just sort of like, well, what voice have I heard as I've been reading these comics and participating in this Sort of wonderful mythology, my whole life, and 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 there it was. So, yeah, I, I loved uh, I loved comics, and uh, I loved the whole concept of uh, of the, the coming of age, uh, conflicted uh, hero. And even though I sort of didn't sort of understand a lot of that until I was older, reading things like Joseph Campbell, you know, et cetera. But um, uh, the power of myth and all that. Yeah. But uh, it, it was just it was just wonderful, and uh, I love the whole Secret Wars stuff and all that stuff from the early '80s, mid '80s, and all the the what if comics about uh, Spider Man. It's just you know utterly fascinating to me. It really uh, spurred my uh, my love of of mythology, and uh, and let's face it, you know most people don't really read Bullfinch's mythology. A lot of people don't read the Aeneid and you know the Iliad and the Odyssey anymore. Some some of us do, um, but you know some of us real hardcore geeks like to get into that stuff, but. Uh, you know, a lot of people they they access these mythic archetypes through uh, through comics, and that's I think the great 
gift of of the comic book genre is that it has allowed people to sort of access these uh, perennial archetypes and uh, and really experience them and explore them in ways that uh, was, was sort of uh, has been lost to us in many ways. So it's it's been a real pleasure to be part of that in, 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 in any way. Yeah, it makes sense that you were a, a Secret Wars kid. Did you buy any? Of the, did your parents buy you any of the action figures? Yeah, I had all of it. Um, I uh, well, I would always. I was an avid comic collector, so I would buy the comic to read, which I would, you know, I, I would treat like a you know a fifteenth century illuminated manuscript. You know, I would be so. <laughs> you, you mean they aren't? <laughs> yeah, well, I, you know. And then Keep in I, mind I, who you're talking to here. That's right. Well, so you know, you understand. So I would buy the I would buy the copy to read, and then I would find the perfect pristine copy, which would simply be placed in the plastic immediately and sealed with the cardboard cover, which was never to be touched by human hands again. And you know, so I would buy two copies of everything. This was on my you know my allowance as a kid. This is what I was spending it on, and I'd catalog them all. This is before the days of computers. My little card catalogs of my comics. And, <laughs> So I was definitely into it, man. I was definitely into it. Some of us might still be using card catalogs. <laughs> well, you know, if you don't have a little SQL database, right, you can use the card catalogs. <laughs> Is that something you've carried with you into your adulthood? I mean, not all of us are people in their 30s still buying comics uh, or writing them like John over here. Uh uh, is it something you keep up with still, or has it moved on to you know watching the movies and games or whatever? You know what I found is that uh, the comic, the love of comic books, translated into a love of mythology as I got older. And then, of course, I realized the, the you know the similarities between them because it was really just a, a neo uh, mythic interpretation what these you know the, these comics were. But uh, I, so I, I sort of left comic books as I got older. And really got into stuff like the Joseph Campbell stuff and the power of myth and, you know, the Lord of the Rings and the fantasy literature. And then, of course, the, the classics um, and, and really sort of got into the whole Jungian archetype aspect of, of mythology. And, uh, and actually, the, ironically, that, of course, made me love comics that much more because as comics evolved and got more adult and uh, dealt with more adult themes and uh, uh, became – just more accessible to a, uh, a, a larger audience. I, I think also that's sort of as we grew up with comics, um, that happened. Um, it just made me love the, the genre even more. And uh, I, again, I'm just a huge mythology buff. So uh, it's, uh, it's been a real journey. I guess you know, Peter Parker can grow up after all. <laughs> well, you know, uh, it, it, it's interesting if I can jump in for a second. Um, this is a, a point where Chris and I meet and it was probably one of the reasons why there was such a good synergy on this show. I was first introduced to um, Hero of a Thousand Faces, which is Joseph Campbell's seminal work, in 1972 or 73 um, by a good friend of mine, Henry Kaiser III. We were crossing campus, and he said, because Henry is this kind of a guy, he said, you know, John, you should read this book. It's great. Boom. And he handed it to me. <laughs> And that was when I found out that Joseph Campbell existed and what it was all about, the, the whole concept of the monomyth. That was very much a part of the series, the 65 half hours. It, I looked at it as one giant mythological voyage. And if the series has any, you know, uh, if it resonates at all with people in this day and age, I think that that's one of the reasons why. So the fact that Chris also kind of tuned into this um, I think it's it really speaks to 
the core of, of, um, of just the backbone, the strength of the series in terms of why it has lasted so long. Yeah, this series had an arc. That's one of the things people uh, mention to me when, when they talk about the show is that the, the show was not just sort of a, a cartoony snippet, you know, a, a weekly cartoony snippet. You know, this was a this was high fantasy. You know, this was deep myth and it was connected and the stories had context and relevance and the characters changed and evolved and and uh, that's one of the things that that seems to have been the appeal uh, is that people felt that they were immersed in this uh, in this world which had had meaning and it wasn't just sort of well this week on it was yeah. it was part of a whole uh, reality and um, and again yeah I think that that's what what John was talking about in the creating that backbone because it it really was a secondary reality that people could immerse themselves in, which people yeah. could immerse themselves. Nothing drives me crazier than starting the, a lot of these shows today. And most of these series are like the first 20 minutes of a really good movie. And then they just continue ad infinitum. And the, and the problem is they really don't have an ending in sight. And, you know, and, I, and the thing that I really hate is when all the original writers leave the show and a whole bunch of new writers come in, and so you realize that wherever the show was headed in the beginning, it's it, everything has now changed. And I always feel that ultimately that kind of leaves you, leaves you with the feeling that you've wasted your time. You know, you don't hear a lot of people talking about how much they enjoy lost reruns. And that's because I think that by the time that show ended, it really had lost its way. And so even though it was a very strong show, Ultimately, you were kind of left with the feeling of, well, where did that really go? Um, Spider-Man really had had a very definite voyage. And for all of the um, frustration that the ending causes for people, you know, and causes for me, I have to look at lists online, you know, the top ten shows that, that ended without an ending. Well, in fact, it did have an ending, which was you started out with a very insecure guy, Peter Parker, and by the end of the show, he is so sure of himself that he turns to his creator, Stan Lee, and says, well, Stan, I'm not the guy you created anymore because I like myself now. I just saved all of reality. And I did that by digging deeply into myself and realizing how strong I was and, and what I had going for me. And so I like myself now. Talk about as, the hero's journey. <laughs> yeah, that's the hero's journey. That's yeah. the end of it. You know, so... So this whole business of, well, why didn't he get Mary Jane? I realized that from a 12-year-old level or a 9-year-old level, I should have done that. But, but in terms of the epic hero's journey that I was telling, it's got an ending. And the ending is exactly what it should be. Well, don't sell short the 30-somethings that still want to know the ending. We'll ta- <laughs> and we'll, we'll talk about that in a little bit. But I'd like to go back to the very beginning from the ending um, and ask you guys a little bit more about this audition process for this role. John, I'd love to know... Um, when, when you were looking for someone to be your Peter Parker and your Spider-Man, what, uh, what qualities were you looking for for, for this role? Um, he had to come in at a certain salary range. No, just kidding. <laughs> uh, no, I had absolutely nothing to do with the casting. Um, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm incredibly verbose when it comes to things that I had something to do with. And I am extremely honest about the things I had nothing to do with. Uh, I, that was not my domain. I was in the middle of script writing. We were under horrible deadline pressure, and the show was kind of a mess at the beginning politically. So I was busy writing scripts, and the casting was in the hands of um, 
I think our, our casting guy was Ralph Sanchez and uh, and Bob Richardson was weighing in and the network was weighing in and you know all those people that that deal with all those things I'm sure Stan had a say in it as well uh, I heard tapes I don't know how people were plucked out from auditions I was not there for auditions and so Chris was just kind of a wonderful surprise when I arrived in the recording booth for the first show there he was and people like Ed Asner and Saratoga Valentine and I really didn't have any say in the matter so Chris what do you remember about this whole process auditioning and and getting the part you know were you hesitant to take it uh, just talk me through your emotions of, of, of get, getting this role well, I was thrilled uh, to have the opportunity to audition for Spider-Man. When I first heard about it, I, I mean, this was this was incredible to me. I mean, I loved Spider-Man. I was a huge fan. So when they said that they were doing a Spider-Man series and they wanted me to audition for Spider-Man, I mean, I was just over the moon. I couldn't believe it. So, again, I had been reading the comic my whole life, and uh, when I actually went into the booth to audition... I was reading the material, and as I was, I would read the material, and then I was closing my eyes, and I was visualizing the comic, and I was visualizing, you know, frames from the comics I had read, and I would match one of the lines on the script to an image from a comic, and I would think, well, okay, if he's saying that, this is probably what's happening. And so I would create this sort of storyboard in my mind just from having read the comic my whole life. And then I would match the storyboard to the dialogue and then just sort of go from there. And then, and then once you do that as an actor, once you have words and images, then the body language comes out and you start to, well, you know, he's probably swinging in this manner and, you know, his body's probably in this position. And of course, you know, looking back, I realized that was because I had been so indoctrinated into the Spider-Man myth that I was able to just sort of dive right in. And I probably not a lot of, of the other actors were doing that because they weren't such fanatic fans. Um, and, uh, and so I just, it just, kind of all came tumbling out and I just I loved it and again as we've seen the Spider-Man myth evolve through time and we've seen all these different actors you know you are sort of the uh, you're the you're the current avatar of a Marvel deity you know and <laughs> and I, I always look at it that way. I, I take it that seriously. And boy, when you don't take it seriously, the fans know they can feel it, and yeah. they will they will eviscerate you online. I mean, they will tell you that they don't like you. And I've been very fortunate in that I've had a lot of positive feedback. And I think it's because they sensed that I was as into it as they are. Like I took it as seriously. I love the character, and I think maybe that's one of the reasons that I've stayed with the character, you know, for twenty years, twenty plus years. Um, maybe not. Maybe I'm just reading into that, but that's sort of the way I feel about it. And uh, it's just, again, it's just a real honor to be a part of the process at all. No, I said this in an earlier interview. There is no finer voiceover actor than Chris Barnes. Um, <laughs> Chris, Chris is really, really, really good. And there would be things that he would do that would just amaze me. And, and to be able to do them at a very young age um, was astonishing. Uh, so, you know, what, what, you're, what you just got was the interior workings of a really genius voiceover actor. Um, we were very lucky to have Chris be the uh, the lead in this series. He did bring an honesty and an intensity to the role that I think really made the, the, uh, the animation work. 
Well, there's a lot of enthusiasm in your voice, and I wanted to ask you about this, John. Um, the pace of your series, it's so rapid-fire fast. I, I watched through the first yeah. two, two seasons this past week yeah. to prepare for this, and it's yeah. like just it bombarding you, and that, <laughs> and, and that and, and in a great way. I mean, especially for yeah. a young ADD mind like my own. Um, but I can hardly think of an animated series whose primary actions move so quickly, mm-hmm. and I'm sure that that meant tons of different animation cells and mountains of voice acting and longer scripts than typical. Um, John, can you speak to the decision to have your show operate this way, and I guess how it affected the content of the show? And then I guess following that up, Chris, can you speak, I mean, your enthusiasm comes through, but can you speak to how this pacing affected you as a, as a performer? Um, sure. I'll jump in. <clears throat> the pacing was an experiment, and it was my experiment. I don't think anybody quite anticipated that I was going to do this. Um, I, I had been... This This is weird. I'll, I'll try to tell a short version. I fell in love with a milk commercial um, wh- where there was a guy who was obviously what we called at that time a yuppie, and he was firing somebody over his portable phone. I don't think there were cell phones. It was a portable phone. And he was so happy that he had done that that he, that he started laughing, and, and he started crossing the street without paying any attention, and a bus hit him. And he ended up in heaven, or we thought. And there was just a giant plate of cookies, chocolate cookies. And he started eating the chocolate cookies, and even he was kind of surprised that he had ended up in what appeared to be heaven. So he's eating the chocolate cookies. And then he went to a refrigerator, and he saw that there was milk inside, and he went to grab the cartons, and they were all empty. So he had no milk. And therefore, this was not heaven, this was hell. Tom, can I make a suggestion? You're fired! (laughs) Welcome to eternity. Hmm. Heaven! (laughs) Yes. Now, this entire story was told in one minute. And I thought to myself, and I would say to my writers, you got to look at that milk commercial. It was on the air that particular year, the year we started. I said, because if they can tell that complicated a story in one minute, then we should be able to tell our minutes of Spider-Man should be just as filled with that much information and, and, and played out as elegant as elegantly as that so now that's a weird story but that's really where that came from i just thought i i just want this to be a roller coaster ride i don't want anyone's attention ever to flag but i don't want it to be i don't want it to be cheap shots you know like an explosion here and an explosion there i look at a lot of uh, animated shows now and it's just a lot of explosions and a lot of running around and all that kind of stuff i wanted it to be genuine storytelling but i wanted the information to be conveyed in a very rapid fire manner so um that's where that came from uh it was just something it was an experiment that i that i wanted to try uh and i think it worked because i i'm watching i'm re-watching season one right now and it's breathtaking it takes your breath away um and i can watch it now without even remembering that i had anything to do with it it's sort of like it's been so many years that it's all new to me in a way um, I, I think it worked, and that's where that came from. It was really just something that I wanted to experiment with. The other thing is, as you can already tell, uh, I, I love 
I love words. Um, I, I think that there's an elegance to conversation and speaking. Probably my ideal medium should be radio drama um, because I really love words and I love writing words and I love writing characters and I love characters expressing themselves through words. So there's an awful lot of that. I never handed in a short script. You know, we, we more often than not, we would cut um, the scripts, uh, you know, before things went to air, especially when Bob decided that he wanted to put recaps into everything or flashbacks into everything. Um, so we'd lose a minute right there uh, in a lot of the scripts. Um, and then also I had this wonderful cast to play with. And um, I had a superhero whose mouth was covered. So when we would get the film in and I would see how things were playing, I would often have the, the option to change dialogue. Uh, and we, Chris will remember this. We would often do ADR, not ADR, but we would often record extra lines uh, um, after the fact, and I would I could finesse things a little bit better. So anyway, I hope that answers your question. Sure. So Chris, how did this affect you as an actor in your performance? Well, I think that uh, uh, one of the things about Spider-Man that's interesting is that Spider-Man's not an action hero; he's a processing hero. In other words, it's not what he's it's not what he's doing; it's what he's experiencing. And Spider-Man has such an internal; he's always thinking. He's always processing. He's always exploring. And the fact that he's doing this while all these other, you know, quote, action scenes are taking place is, I think, one of the endearing qualities to the character. Um, So it's uh, like John was saying, there's such an emphasis on things blowing up and and action taking place that there's not as much of an emphasis on the experiencing or the processing. And Spider-Man seems to epitomize that. Um, Yeah. He's he's always even in the new film, even the great job that that, that uh, Holland does, is um, you know the the funny quips. But you have a metal arm. He, he's he's making these really offhanded comments because he's always seeing things, and that's sort of the the vitality of youth, and uh, again that sort of the young hero, and that's so refreshing and interesting. So the pace of it made total sense to me as an actor because I just saw that as a reflection of the character. So we were. We were doing all of these things and this rapid-fire sequence, but it was, it was more about processing and experiencing than it was just about action. So it, it, it actually helped me uh, as an actor, um, and, and it made sense to me. Let, me. let me give you an example, Dan. Um, in the beginning, I had to decide whether or not there was going to be an interior monologue for the character. And I looked at the comic books. There was one particular comic book I opened up where it was something like there were something like three pages of nothing but solid interior thought, thought bubbles. And that that made that decision easy. Yes, we would do an interior monologue. But then I did something daring in the pilot, which I had no idea whether it was going to work or not. There's this amazing fight sequence underwater where the lizard and Spider-Man are battling for the control of the neogenic recombinator and it's it's like action-packed and the music's going crazy and everything and they're you know they're they're down there grappling with each other now in a, in a regular cartoon show that would be loud music you know and 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 no dialogue whatsoever and i thought let's not do the normal thing let's do something very strange and so I wrote this monologue, this interior monologue for Chris, where right at the heart, the heart of the battle, he says in a very soft voice, strange, so strange. This man used to be my mentor, my friend. 
and now here I am fighting with him. You know, you don't do that in a cartoon show. I'm amazed they let me get away with it. Strange. So strange. A week ago, this creature was a scientist. My teacher. My friend. He cared for people and wanted to help them just as I do. And now look at the both of us fighting each other, fighting for our lives. But that's the kind of thing that we would do on Spider-Man that I think really set it apart and in a way ran as a counterbalance to that pacing that you, that you were just talking, you know, that rapid-fire pacing. There would be these moments where the character would just stop and think about what was going on and philosophize a little bit. My other favorite moment is when he's on the bridge right after Mary Jane Watson dies. He thinks she's died. And um, she had just fallen off. It was the end of Turning Point. And I have him standing on the bridge, and I wrote, I wrote a, a, a soliloquy. So long now. I've tried to be there for everyone. Tried to live up to the responsibility that comes with this great power. But when push came to shove, I failed the people who needed me most. The woman I love is gone. Gone. Forever. You know, it was practically a last poor Yurik. I knew him well. It's this long, you know, I, I've tried to help people, but... But I end up hurting them, the ones I love the most. It's literally like 45 seconds of pure dialogue. That's, uh, for me, that was the bliss of this show, is that I could experiment with that kind of thing. I love this, uh, this processing, not action. Uh, that's the most elegant way I've ever heard that expressed. I'm going to definitely be using that. Thank you. That's- oh, hey, well, <laughs> my pleasure, man. That's how I feel about it. I'm glad you dug it. <laughs> no, that's really wonderful. Um, so, uh, Chris, I've always loved the, uh, like the edginess you brought to your voice work when performing a Spider-Man and the kind of soft warmth you brought to Peter. He's very affectionate towards everybody. Um, and the distinction isn't quite as different as, say, like uh, Kevin Conroy's different performances as Batman and Bruce Wayne, but you can always tell which personality is dominant any any time, I've always felt, whether it be Peter or Spider-Man. Can you talk about creating these two distinct personalities and what it was like performing both of them? Yeah, I think that, again, was sort of an organic uh, experience, having evolved out of my love of the comic, because it, it seemed like, <clears throat> again, just the whole concept of wearing a mask. And again, as John was saying, the the the, the mouthless mask. So there's almost symbolism there that uh, the the Peter mode and, and sort of what he talks about and especially the interaction with Aunt May and uh, and Mary Jane and Gwen, um, this, uh, as you say, there's this warmth and uh, there's this humanity and there's a vulnerability, which I think lends itself to to that, uh, to the essence of that that character, that expression of that character and that part of his nature. But, you know, when the suit goes on, it's it's a whole different experience. It's again, there's it's this persona, it's this this archetype which is now drawn over the personality of that sensitive individual, which is now which now needs to be uh, a projection of strength and will and determination in order to protect and defend that that sensitive life. So again, now we're going into sort of this uh, the archetypal warrior. So what I love about Spider-Man is that he's, he's in conflict. He's, he, he really is the philosopher warrior. You know, he's in conflict. He's coming of age and he needs to fight for what is right because what is right is what is uh, vulnerable and beautiful in human nature. 
And again, that may be me just way, you know, reading too much into it, but that's just kind of the way I feel about it. That's the way I always thought about it. So in terms of creating that dynamic, um, it, it was just that, that warrior mode defending the, the vulnerable, sensitive, um, what is best in life, uh, what makes life worth living, but yet you need to also defend it from, you know, the forces of, of life and psychology and sociology and nature and people that, uh, that are out of balance with that or that are out of accord with that. And, and that's really the order the, that's really the hero's struggle. I'm curious what the, uh, like moving away from philosophy, what, what the actual room of the recording booth was like as a writer and as a performer. Um, you know, I'm curious about the physical reality of it. How, did you guys record multiple actors at the same time? Did you do rewrites while, uh, while recording? Uh, how did that work out for you? Well, as, a, as a performer, that was one of the best things about this show is that we were all together. It was like an old radio drama. It was like an old radio show. So we were all in the booth together. We were all in, in next to each other uh, on, you know, with our stands and our, and our scripts next to each other. We were doing these sequences and these scenes and, and you know, interacting with each other. And so just from a, just a performance level, again, it was like this wonderful stage production, this radio show where we were all there. I remember doing a scene with, with uh, Mark Hamill as the Hobgoblin. Yeah. Let me tell you something. That would not be the same without that cat next to you in the room. Because let me tell you, <laughs> let me let me tell you, that takes your performance to another level. When I mean, of course, to me it was Luke Skywalker, but yeah. he comes in and all of a sudden I look over at this guy and like the veins bulging out of his head, and he's got the crazy gleam in his eye. And of course, you know, then all of a sudden I'm Spider Man next to the Hobgoblin. It was it was awesome, you know, and it was like that with these various performers and, and scenes and the interaction. So it was this really interactive uh, experience that brought the whole thing to life. Yeah, yeah. We would usually get together. We'd start at, at 2 early o'clock in the morning. Um, and so we'd all be a little bleary-eyed and, and, uh, and we'd have donuts and whatnot out in the green room. And I think those green room gatherings were a huge part of the bonding process for everybody just getting very comfortable with one another. Um, and then we'd, we'd go into the recording studio. Bob was there. I was there. Tony Pastor, our director, was there. Uh, sometimes Ralph was there. Um, and really, as much of the cast as we could get a hold of uh, to be there, and it, that was usually everybody. Um, so there would be this wonderful synergy going on inside the recording booth, but then also the green room was fantastic. I mean... You know, finding myself in the middle of conversations between Ed Asner, Ephraim Zimbalist Jr., and David Warner, while they were all trying to top each other with stories of you know, performing Shakespeare, <laughs> you, you, it doesn't get any better than that. Sometimes I wanted to be in the green room more than I wanted to be in the booth, but um, it was uh, it was a wonderful experience because everybody really they we all knew we were doing something special. And uh, and and it was at the very dawn of getting really great actors, famous actors to come and be part a part of cartoon shows. So people that came in and out were, were people like, um, you know, Rue McClanahan, um, Edward Mulhair. Um, good grief. We had so many of them, the, the names of which escape me right at the moment, but they're all here alive in my head. Um, but it was Jeff Corey, uh, you know, just all these people who had wonderful histories and and they brought that into into the booth with them. It was it was a very exciting experience. That for me was the most exciting part of doing this show. 
And how long would it take to record a typical episode? Um, I'd say about four hours. Chris, what do you think? Uh, yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, it's about four hours. Basically, what would happen would be we'd start with the script, and then Tony would say, yeah, you, you know, I ne- you need to bite me. And then we'd go back and start again. <laughs> <laughs> and each line was done probably about three or four times. Uh, Tony was really, Tony was wonderful, and he was really meticulous about that stuff. Um, and, um, you know, if Bob heard something that wasn't quite right, um, we'd, we'd fix it. If I heard something that wasn't right, we'd fix it. If I heard, if if an actor was having a problem with a line or something wasn't quite making sense, I'd be there to change it. Um, so it was, it was a long process, you know, for a 22 minute piece to be in there for four hours, obviously you're really working hard. One of the, um, if I might, if I might segue to War of the Rocketmen for a second, one of the uh, perks of uh, War of the Rocketmen, which I think actually is the best perk, for $25, you're going to get, uh, among a whole bunch of other things, you're going to get this virtual ticket to this uh, online streaming little film festival that I'm going to put together. I discovered that I have something like three hours of footage of us in the recording booth. Chris, did you know this? I, no, I didn't know this. What? I have three hours. That's awesome. I I had, you know, I had a home video camera. I had a high eight millimeter camera, and I think originally an eight millimeter video camera, and I brought it into the booth. I brought it into the booth at the very beginning. Oh, my God. And I brought it into the booth for the very last episode with Stan and Joan and Stanley and Joan Lee and uh, uh, Brian, uh, 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 Brian Keith. And, um, and so I, and you know, I, I filmed this stuff. I never looked at it. I put it in a box. I dug it out about a year ago and I started looking at it and I was shocked at how much footage I had of us in the booth. I got Uh, to see that. Yeah, it's great. It's you just doing your Spider-Man thing. Uh, Linda Gary before she passed away. May she rest in peace. Goodness. It's it's great stuff, and I was surprised because I thought I remembered recording the last day, and I thought, okay, I know I've got about you know forty five minutes, maybe an hour of footage. I have probably over three hours of footage of us recording, so a lot of this stuff is going to be part of the the Spider Man behind the scenes film festival, and I'm going to also throw in some other stuff, uh, a lot of surprises. So for me, that's like the greatest perk of all that we're offering. You know, I, I, forget about the books and the cells and all that kind of stuff. Just to look at that, you know, I, I still haven't looked at all the footage, so I'm looking forward to seeing it all the way through. And then, uh, Dan, you'll get a really good idea of what it was like doing a, recording a Spider-Man. You'll, it's, I'm just going to run it nonstop, uh, and you'll get to see a, probably an entire recording session. That sounds like a lot of fun. Um, I got to ask: Were were there any lines that just became an inside joke, or things you just couldn't? I'm sure with all of the recording, there must have been some things that build up. Uh, can, anything you can say that uh, that is PG or PG thirteen? Yeah, well, we were a very clean group, so there would uh, there wouldn't be anything. Um, out of line. Uh, the only thing I can remember was uh, how the girls, Jennifer and Saratoga Ballantyne, uh, who was the voice of Mary Jane Watson, Jennifer Hale, the voice of Felicia Hardy, they used to request that uh, Nick Jameson uh, just say the word Felicia. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> they loved that. They would swoon. They would say, say it, Nick, say it. Felicia. So, so anyway, fun. that's what I remember. 
Chris? Uh, I, I can't top that. <laughs> All right. <laughs> uh, one, one more question about, about uh, recording, the actual recordings. Um, you know, it's common in animated television shows that voice actors often take on numerous roles in the, cra- the cast. Uh, Chris, did you ever portray another character in the series, like, a, like just a one-line character or anything? And John, did you ever get to make a voice debut? Mm-hmm. Chris, I, I'll let you go first. I believe I did, and I believe it was a pilot. I, I think it was a, in one episode. There was a pilot flying over. He was like a fighter pilot, and he. And I think that was that was the only other character I think I played. And it was just one line. Uh, do you remember that, John? I have no memory of that whatsoever. I, I, think, nor, that's, I think that's what. Nor, it was. nor did I have any memory of my one line until um, there's a young fellow named Tim Barker, who's whom I call the unofficial Spider-Man historian. Uh, and he he has a site called Spider Man. Oh, uh, the animated series is awesome, or something like that. It's a Facebook page, and he asked me about it, and I and suddenly I remembered. I have a line in Day of the Chameleon, where after Spider Man rescues some window washers who are on a platform falling as a result of a helicopter crash, um, after he brings them down and lands. There's a crowd that is gathered around, and there's a guy who says, "Way to go, Spider-Man!" <laughs> and that's just me, like that, <laughs> just like that. That's exactly what he sounds like. <laughs> Way to go, Spider-Man! <laughs> I don't know that I would have picked up that was you. Yeah, no, no one would. I forgot. I completely forgot that it was me. So there you go. Uh, you know, speaking of strange voices, I, I have to ask this about the villains in, in this show, that none of them seem to be from America, despite being New York villains like the <laughs> Kingpin. They're all, like, have these, like, you know, European accents. So where did that come from? Was it just that Europeans are, are sound arch? <laughs> all uh, you the know, villains are British. <laughs> yeah, there you go. They, you know, you, cla- the villains you are, are classy. <laughs> the villains have class, so they can't be Americans. <laughs> Um, I don't know. You know, I was really surprised when Doc Ock showed up and Ephraim was doing a German accent. I had never imagined that when I looked at the character. Um, so that that was a surprise because I didn't do casting. I, you know, I'd show up in the booth and it was all just a wonderful surprise to me. So um, I don't quite know how that happened, really. Yeah, I know. It's just something that always sticks out to me that like the Kingpin sounds like I, I can't put my finger on it, but it's like Russian, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, that was Roscoe's voice. You know, there was, yeah, Roscoe was always talked like this, you know, yeah, that Roscoe kind of thing. Roscoe was awesome. He had yeah, a he was, great voice. He was wonderful. Well, Chris, how, how do you think your voice changed in, in your years on the show? Or get maybe even your approach to the character? Well, I don't, I don't think my voice changed that much. It was only over the course of a few years. I was in my early 20s. Um, but I, I think it, uh, it changed in, in – of the care of the character changing that sort of uh, that story arc that John was alluding to earlier about uh, going from the sort of young insecure uh, hero to the you know wizened sort of more mature experienced uh, confident hero so um, I, I think there may have been subtle changes uh, over the course of the show in, in that regard but again that's a very subtle arc uh, within the character but uh, uh, that would probably be the only uh, uh, the only changes that took place, I would say. Well, how how 
How about that incredible job Chris did? And I was talking about this this morning in another interview. The amazing job Chris did in the uh, in the multiverse episodes, which, by the way, I invented the multiverse. Um, you know, the the time when there were all the Spider Men together, and each one had a different personality. So Chris isn't doing a voice; he's doing an attitude change. He's doing a personality change. <laughs> yeah, that was fun. And he's and he's doing lines with himself. And there's an arrogant Spider-Man and there's a meek Spider-Man who doesn't have any real power. And there's, you know, this one and that one. And Chris, I mean, I'm in the booth listening to it, watching him do this. And I could hear the distinct personalities. That, to me, was, you know, what, what made Chris stand out in my mind and makes him stand out in my mind as one of the best voiceover actors I've ever encountered. That's very, very kind of you to say, John. I really appreciate that. But that that was an, a great opportunity to to sort of flex some voiceover muscle and uh, uh, really, really just indulge in in uh, in the process because these characters were so interesting. I mean, it was the same character and yet not at all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it was the same voice, but as you said, very different attitudes. And I remember doing that. I remember how much fun uh, we had with that because we'd have to. I'd have to maintain this thread. It was like these multiple threads. Well, this guy's this way, and this guy's this way, and this one's this way. And then as they began to interact, I'd sort of jump back and forth to these different frequencies. <laughs> right. Characters. You had to have conversations with yourself, you know. Yeah. Which just <laughs> yeah. amazed me. Just amazed me that you, that you could do that. I, I still have conversations with myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, so would, so would just Peter Parker on his own, uh, you know, yes. whether his internal monologue or what. Uh but, uh, yeah, Spider Knight has always been a favorite of mine. Um, so thank you for that wonderful creation. Um, you, you said, you know, you're flexing your, uh, your voiceover muscles. But I, I'm curious about how much uh, you, you brought to the role physically in, in the recording studio. Because I know, you know, some actors really like to put their all into it. What, what's it like for you? Well, you know, it, it's funny. We were talking about this earlier um, that uh, when we were initially recording uh, in the beginning, we kept having a problem with the microphone that I, I kept going off mic. Like the mic, the sound was not right <clears throat> when I would transition from from Peter Parker to Spider-Man. And they couldn't figure out what was wrong with the microphone. So they were kind of getting irritated with the engineer. And then somebody pointed out, I don't remember who it was, but they pointed out that when I was talking in the voice of Peter Parker, my I was standing in, in, in one particular way. And then when I would start doing Spider-Man, my whole body would change. I would crouch down. I would start doing all these really, you know, so I was all over the place. And then somebody looked up and said, well, he's, you know, he's dipping down below the mic. He's, you know, crouching in this position. And it wasn't dramatic, but it was subtle enough so that it was causing this, this, uh, this sound problem. And it's just sort of a reflection of the physicality of the role because, and I yeah, would also I, close I, my eyes a lot when I was doing the dialogue, I would look at the script. I would, I would memorize the line and I would close my eyes. I would imagine the scene. I would see it in my head and then I would do the dialogue. And again, you're sort of acting it out to some degree in your mind and, and, but your body follows. And uh, so that was a really interesting aspect of the, of the, the physicality of the role, which was a lot of fun. I actually have some still pictures of Chris doing this um, that I shot at the time. Um, we were so disturbed by that change of microphone position that we were thinking of replacing him with Brock Peters. But, uh, <laughs> fortunately, we changed our minds. Well, how did you solve that? Did you did you like force yourself to like you know like uh, aim towards the microphone more specifically, or it's a trick I still use to this day. What I would do is I will watch. It sounds silly. 
I will widen my stance so that my feet are are more than shoulder shoulders width apart. I'll, I'll and when I so when I do my crouch, it's not. It, it, that's my my talking voice. So when I'm doing, if I was doing Peter or something, I would have my 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 stance wider. And then when I would go into Spidey, I'd bring my legs together and crouch. So I'm still in the same position relative to the microphone, but my body posture changes. <laughs> I think you ought to go to some gyms and sell this exercise. As, you, know, you know, there's that nerd gym in L.A. I think they'd pick up on this. It was just one of those funny tricks I learned. I said, well, how can I keep my face in the same position relative to the mic? I said, OK, well, when I'm doing Peter's dialogue, I'll just spread my, my, my stance out wider. And that way I sort of have sort of this very passive, you know, gentle. And then when I'm Spidey, I'll you know, change my, my – bring my feet together in almost like a karate stance and then – crouch down, but the, it would all end up being in the same place. It was very funny. It worked out and, and it, it was, it was great. <laughs> <laughs> hey, John, I wanted to ask you, um, you know, I was watching it. Like I said, I was watching the first two seasons of the show and, and I was thinking, you know, I can't think of another children's show that portrayed the hero as having multiple love interests. And mm-hmm. in this case, Mary Jane and Felicia Hardy, <clears throat> was there yeah. any pushback to Peter? And I apologize for this pun, uh, being swinging and single. <laughs> um, that's a good question, Dan. I that, well, first of all, there was pushback to everything I wanted to do in the first season, and I was it was a, just a complete uphill battle. So I'm sure there was because I simply said I wanted to do it. You know, if I said I want this to be red, somebody oh, it can't be red. We don't think red will work. It won't work. You're crazy and stupid. Um, and there was a lot of that in the first season. Um, I, you know, some of it though, just kind of happened without anybody really paying attention. The way I work is um, sometimes if I'm getting a lot of flack, I just I, I sort of just pretend to be real stupid and stuff is just happening. You know, it's like I, I'm not really controlling it, but I am. So some of that just slipped in. Um, I do remember once, when, <laughs> see, this is a perfect example of what I'm saying. When I wrote the pilot, I put Deborah Whitman in it, and I put Deborah Whitman in it because I didn't know what I wanted to do with Mary Jane or whether I wanted to have Gwen or, you know, I had no idea what I was going to do. Uh, and certainly Felicia wasn't a character that I don't, I don't even think I was aware of yet. So uh, to avoid the thing altogether, I plucked this obscure character out of the comics, Deborah Whitman, and I just said, OK, she's going to be the girl in it because I can't I just can't decide all this other stuff. We had to get the pilot going. So the pilot got going. Deborah Whitman's in it. And when we were at a, at a convention, um, a comic book convention here in L.A., that clip, we had prepared that clip where Peter first sees the lizard in the, in the, um, in the uh, lab and chases after him, jumps on the windowsill, is about to change to Spider-Man. And Deborah says, Peter, don't leave me. And, he, you know, he, so we have that clip. And at the end of that clip, Deborah kind of looks up to him and says, well, you were, that was pretty brave of you, Peter, kind of with a little gleam in her eye. And Stan came to me afterwards, and I think that was the first time that he realized that there was any kind of indication of maybe like a love thing going on. Uh, And he said to me, and he went into this whole tirade about how Peter only loves Mary Jane. It's Peter and Mary Jane. It's no one else. I I, I really think it's a problem that that girl looks like she's in love with Peter because Peter and Mary, he he, he really was very worked up about it, you know, Excelsior. Um, (laughs) And and I think that was the first time he noticed that 
anything was going on that wasn't just Peter and Mary Jane. But, you know, I had grown up with the books, and I knew, I knew that there was that element of Spider-Man that was very important. Which, which woman, which girlfriend was he going to end up with? That was a huge reason why I read the comic book when I was a kid. So um, it was very important to me that all of that had to be in there. Um, I had mapped out a whole soap opera arc for the first season, and uh, I started it with Spider Slayers, the first Spider Slayers episode, which I only just watched a couple of days ago. And um, right after that episode was done, the edict came down that there would be no continuing storylines, period. And if I had any notion of doing anything like that, I was to stop immediately, and, and which, of course, would kill all of that sort of, you know, what, that soap opera stuff. Uh, and so uh, that's why after that we just sort of did the single episodes, Venom being an exception and Hobgoblin being an exception, but the rest of them are all standalone episodes. And then in the second season, when the show finally got on the air and was a hit, everybody kind of relaxed and it was no longer the new toy, so they weren't, they weren't really paying attention. And then I just started up the soap opera again. Uh, and, uh, and that, you know, that was really important to me to do that. So yes, there probably was pushback. That's the short answer. Um, you know, you mentioned all the soap opera, um, you know, there was no time more so in this, in the comic book series, uh, that the book was, you know, Betty and Veronica back and forth than during Stanley and John Romita seniors time on the series. And, uh, your, your show, you know, watching it through, uh, not only did I uh, find some spelling errors, which I'm sure you're aware of, like museum in the first season. Have you seen this? <laughs> no. Uh, and uh, it's spelled M-U-S-C-U-M in, in, <laughs> in one of the newspapers. But uh, on one of the newspapers, uh, there's a little, like, writing that says, you know, uh, article written by Ned Leeds. And I'm yeah. curious if that's you doing that. And if so, um, was this Stan Lee, John Romita error era, um, your inspiration, I, I guess, are you, what you know, knew of Spider-Man, did it come from that era? Yes. Well, it wasn't what I knew of Spider-Man because I started reading Spider-Man within maybe a month or two of it, of it beginning. I just missed purchasing that amazing fantasy by probably a month or two. Oh. Uh, so, you know, I mean, back in those days, there were no comic book stores, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, you had to. You either bought the comic uh, in the on the newsstand, or you didn't get the comic. And if you missed it, you missed it. There was, you know, nobody was reselling anything. So um, I happened to only notice Spider-Man maybe the second or third month in, and that was while traveling the subway on my way to high school. Um, so I was there at the very beginning. I began with Ditko. I loved Ditko. And when uh, uh, Johnny Ramida, 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 Ramida. Uh, Ramita, when Johnny, you know, I just met Johnny Ramita Jr. at a DC event, so I should know this. Um, anyway, um, when uh, Johnny Ramita took over Spider-Man, quite frankly, that to me was a very important transition that I liked. I preferred. I know that this is blasphemy to to a good number of people out there, but for me, the, the Ramita era was when it it all just clicked, you know, and. Um, that's where you get turning point, and that's where you get um, a, a lot of the issues that really worked for me. The writing was was really sharp, uh, and um, I saw the series, and I think Bob did too, in the design as very much being that era 
and that being our inspiration. As far as the newspaper was concerned, I actually have all my books of artwork of all the prop designs and everything. Those were, those were designed by people, uh, artists on staff. We designed every prop. So anytime anybody handled a prop, that had to be designed by an artist. And all of that material would get sent overseas, and that's what they used as a basis for it. So those newspapers, I actually have the model sheets for those newspapers. And probably those were artists who really were into Spider-Man who knew that they should do that, you know, put put a byline by Ned Leeds. Um, and I think Ned Leeds did eventually turn up in our series briefly. I think, I think Bobby Bergen did his voice. I'm not sure. But um, at any rate, that's where that came from. So probably the artist designing that prop was the one that put that in there. As far as the misspelling is concerned, I'm so used to that because I've been in animation already. By the time I did Spider-Man, I'd been in animation for about 10 years. And everything gets sent overseas, and they don't know what they're, what they're writing. It's, sure. not their, it's not their language. You know? And if you've got something being animated in China or Korea, and in fact, most of the animation is done in Korea, they have no idea what they're writing. So um, they were always doing stuff like that. And after a while, I just stopped noticing it. You know? um, I remember years ago in a, in a Scooby-Doo, I had, uh, I had written Pingree's Department Store, uh, which was where everything was taking place, and and that was based. That was a named after a friend of mine. I always put my friends' names and things, and and it came back Pidigree's department store, P I D I, instead of P I N G. Um, so I, you know, I probably saw that and and just paid no attention to it. I'm so used to it. That's funny. Okay, so last question about the audio in the series, which <laughs> seems to be the focus of this conversation. Um, the music in this show, I think you can't watch this show and not notice the music because it's so memorable with that beautiful orchestral score that, you know, I put it in the, uh, the previous interview that we did at, as like to break up the conversation. I just couldn't help myself but listen to the 20-minute like uh, score because it's so wonderful. And I'm curious, um, you know, did you have any role in as- assembling the people to put together the score. What can you tell me about the the score and the theme song? I wrote all that music. Ah, of course. <laughs> and I sang it. That's <laughs> Spider-Man, Spider-Man Radio Actor. Um, all I can tell you is that part of... Well, we, we know Haim Saban from all the amazing TV shows that he's done. And I think now he owns the world. Um, but the way that he got into the business was, um, if I'm not mistaken, uh, because there were a few people that got into the business this way, Haim had these wonderful connections in Israel where, for a relatively small amount of money, you could get, like, the Israeli Symphony Orchestra or some amazing symphony orchestra to to do the music for things. And um, I think the way that a lot of this would work would be that if you did it in Israel, the, it was a fraction of what it would cost to do it in this country. And then you'd sort of offer it to production entities in this country at a bargain price, and you'd own the music so that when it came time for residuals to come in, you could actually make a fairly hefty amount of money off of the residuals. 
Has anyone ever explained this to either of you guys how this worked? Sure. I never do any of this. <laughs> yeah. This is this is this is actually this is sort of one of those little animation things <laughs> that where a lot of people were making a lot of money, I think, off of uh, off of music rights. That's why everything, every bit of music that ever came out of Hanna Barbera was quote unquote written by Bill Hanna and Joe Barbera. What that what that means is that they had nothing to do with writing it, but they got all the residuals. Um, That's the way to do it. Oh, listen, there were so many. <laughs> there's, there's one side of animation, especially in the 80s, that was always quite wonderful. But then there was another side where it was basically Moss Eisley's spaceport, you know, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> people people had all kinds of ways of earning cash. Um, and I think that that was kind of an offshoot of that. I think that what happened was, um, because I believe that Haim was, was involved in the music, was that they, they just had a wonderful deal on that where we could get these fantastic musicians and this brilliantly composed music for a relatively small amount of money compared to what it would have cost for us to do it. Now, having said that, I don't think they skimped on any aspect of Spider-Man. In fact, it was a win-win situation because uh, not only was it affordable, but it was brilliant. So um, the great thing about the first episode of uh, Spider-Man is that that's an entirely original score that was scored to that episode. And you never get that on Saturday morning. No. Generally, generally on Saturday morning, what you get is somebody provides you with a whole library of music, and then you just use those music cues over and over and over again. But Night of the Lizard, that score from beginning to end was scored specifically to that episode. And that's why that episode seems so lush and wonderful and expensive. And I mean, it's like watching a movie. And that's that's part of the reason that uh, that that happens. So, again, sorry for the long answer, but it's an interesting subject. Chris, I promise I haven't forgotten about you. Um, <laughs> no, I'm fascinated listening to this stuff. I, I didn't know that. <laughs> uh, so, Chris, you know, you would famously return to the character of Spider-Man almost 20 years later. But I was curious, uh, in the time after the show's ending and, I guess, your cur- current work on the character, what what had the show, like, uh, become for you? What role in your life did, did it occupy in, in those years? Well, you know it's funny because it, it, the show kind of went away and then, but it never really went away. Uh, it always seemed to be around. Um, but it, it was a wonderful experience that I had, um, as a young man, as a young actor. And as I moved on to other things, it was just, it sort of, it was something I did in the past and I loved, but it, it wasn't until, as I said, that generation sort of came to adulthood that it that it's it's it was sort of like the seeds blossomed. It was you didn't really understand the 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 until the harvest came in. And I noticed that there was this whole generation that was deeply affected by the show. And so during the time of the planting uh, and the time of the harvesting, it was just sort of you know the shoots were sprouting and things were growing, but it, it was sort of under the radar. But then all of a sudden there was this tremendous resurgence of interest and appreciation for the show. So the time that I did it was wonderful and I loved it. And then uh, I had fond memories of it uh, during the the subsequent years. And then all of a sudden there was this, again, this surge of of new interest and appreciation for the show as as this whole generation became more aware of what it, uh, how it had affected them. And so those are sort of three separate stages to this whole process. Um, 
So it's it's been interesting to watch that, and I think that's one of the reasons that they asked me to come back for uh, other Spider-Man. Uh, I think the first one was uh, Spider-Man Noir in uh, in Shattered Dimensions, and when they approached me, I said, "Well, gee," I said, "I'm not. I mean, I'm. This is. I'm 20 years older now. This is. I mean, I'm not the." same Spider-Man I go, but is that, I'm flattered, but does that make sense? Is it, is it true to the character? Is it, is it going to sound pretentious or fake or, I mean, is, you know, I, I was really not quite sure about that. But then they explained to me, well, Spider-Man Noir is a very different type of Spider-Man. It's a different universe. It's, he's older, he's darker. And I said, so he's me. <laughs> no, you were I pretty said, well, dark. You were pretty dark when you were young, Chris. Yeah, well, yeah, it's gotten worse, John. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I thought, well, that's interesting. You know, I can do that, and and uh, and then it it, it uh, when I read the character and, and looked at the context of the character, I I really appreciate. It. I really gravitated towards that character, and and again, people really responded to it. Again, because I was bringing a sort of a new, uh, it was a new take to a, a new interpretation on the myth and an, ex, an expansion of the myth, which just so happened to, uh, to correlate with my nature and, and the, the performance that I could bring to, uh, to the character. And I, and I loved it and it, people seemed to enjoy it and it was fantastic. And, uh, and then that sort of snowballed from there to, uh, in ultimate Spider-Man, the, the latest series with uh, Drake Bell, I started playing villains. I started playing Electro in that I played this wonderful character called the Wolf Spider, which is, uh, again, we're doing more multidimensional stuff, which is really interesting, which, of course, John pioneered. Um, and uh, uh, Spider Knight on, on USM. So, uh, and I, and I, I was doing that thinking, gee, this brings back memories of me having to play multiple spider characters from the series that, that John had invented. <laughs> and here they are 20 years later, basically doing the same thing. The same and I thought, well, that's, that's interesting. And yet now I'm playing villains and other characters. So it was, what's the old saying? Live, uh, you know, die the hero or live long enough to become the villain. And so it was a thrill to live, have lived long enough to become the villain. <laughs> There's nothing more every man than meeting your multidimensional self. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. But it was, it was really interesting doing noir in particular because as I, as I like to say, there's this wonderful um, uh, there's this wonderful quote from Jung, where he says, uh, "One does not become enlightened by imagining figures of light, but by making the darkness conscious." And I think, yeah, isn't that powerful? And I think that's really behind noir. That's behind the symbiote. That's behind venom. That's what all that stuff is. And so there's this new sort of. Uh, you know, expansive aspect of the character, which has, has been around for a little while, but it's now it's it's taking on new life. And anyway, it's very interesting to me. So I'm thrilled to be a part of it, of course, as always. And so they reached out to you to play noir primarily. That was their first uh, inclination for you. Yeah, I believe that was the first in uh, Shattered Dimensions, and then Edge of Time. Uh, they continued on with 2099, and yeah, and that was uh, that was the uh, the next one that I did. Well, I'm curious, what, what do you think are the differences between recording for a television show and recording for a game? I mean, obviously a game, you're going to have to fill in a lot of different like uh, iterations for all the different choices that the player has. But does that make the recording aspect of it any different for you? It does, actually. It's interesting because when you're doing a, a show like Spider-Man, you are telling a story. You are performing uh, a, a piece of art for for the audience. But when you're doing a game, it's a bit of interactive art. And that's a very subtle distinction because every line is in response to something that the player does. 
and I'm a gamer. I love games. And uh, it, it's really annoying when there's bad voiceover work because it, it kills the suspension of disbelief. So one thing I always think about when I'm doing a video game is that I'm not just telling a story. I'm, I'm interacting in a storytelling experience with the player. And so when I say my when – when I'm doing a lot of lines, I'm, I'm talking to the, to the player. And and that's a very that's a very subtle distinction, but it's very interesting. Um, and uh, I've always made sure that I, I find out well what exactly is happening in this moment. What is the character? What is the player done that's made the character react this way? What has some other character done? How is it? What's actually happening on the screen? Like how? Again, I'm a very visual guy when it comes to this to the voiceover thing. So I I like to know what what is happening in gameplay so that there's not a juxtaposition. Because if you're a gamer, ah. Oh, you can't stand that that awful juxtaposition where the voice doesn't match the action and there doesn't there seems to be a disconnect between what you're doing and what the, the voice is saying. So I, I always have tried to have a a flow so that we're we're in it together. That's always sort of my mentality when it comes to video games is that we're we're in it together because I love games and, and I, I know I want to be in it with you. So I you know it's fun so that we're all in it together and, and it's this uh, co-created experience. But uh, again, maybe I'm sort of reading into it, but that's sort of the way I approach it and, and it, it makes it of value to me. So well, what's it like playing the game and then continuing to have a conversation with yourself? Do you play these games after you complete them? Do you know what? I've never played a game that I've done as myself. Like I've never, and I know that sounds odd, but I do that intentionally. I don't, I don't, I don't want to have me responding to me. <laughs> it's that, you know what I mean? I don't, I don't, I don't want that. It sounds silly, but I don't want that to corrupt the process. Mm. I, I want, I want to know, I want to feel somebody else playing the character and then me interacting with them as that, as that avatar of that character. I don't want to, I don't want to bring me into it. <laughs> if that makes sense. Now, I, I did a promo for War of the Rocket Men, though, where Chris is playing uh, an imaginary game. <laughs> That's right. Made yes. up called Very funny. Spider-Man's online multi multiverse. That's right. And uh, he and Jennifer Hale are playing their respective characters. And, and I won't spoil the surprise for you, but that's a promo that your your listeners might want to look for. Watch out for that spider slayer. Whoa! Oh, that missile just missed me. Let's get that slayer, spider. I'm right behind you, Black Cat. While you hit it with your webbing, I'll climb up here and smash its control center. There! Black Cat, look out! It's gonna blow! We did it! We blew up the spider slayer! You are a very effective Spider-Man, Chris Barnes. Well, Jennifer Hale, you are one heck of a powerful black cat. And we make a pretty good team. But you know, whenever we play Spider-Man's online Spider-Verse together, I kind of always feel like we're cheating. What? Why? Well, you were the voice of Spider-Man in Spider-Man, the animated series, and I was the voice of the black cat. So it's like we've already had plenty of practice being superheroes. We kind of have an unfair advantage over all these other online players. Ah, oh, nonsense. Now, this game has plenty of players better than we are. You know, according to what I've read on the Gamer's Message Forum, here on level 14, behind that door, is the most formidable player in this whole massive multiplayer online role-playing game. And we're just about to face him. So, joystick your black cat character over to that big red button, have her press it, and prepare to face the greatest player in this entire online game universe. Okay, here goes. Moving her to the door. 
Pressing the button. There. Holy crap! It's a giant, super-duper mega spider slayer with mega spider slayer action! Look at the size of that thing. And look how big its guns are! And in that cockpit. Is that who I think it is? Die, you miserable scum! Die! Bow before my power! Feel the wrath of the mighty J. Jonah Jameson! <laughs> Ed? Ed Asner, is that you? Yeah. Who's this? It's Chris Barnes. And Jennifer Hale. Hi. Oh, hi, you guys. You're the high-scoring terror of Spider-Man's online Spider-Verse? Well, yeah. There's nothing I enjoy more than wiping out hordes of idiot superheroes while sitting here in my living room in my underwear. That's a mental image I could have done without. Oh, Chris. Yes, Ed? This is one adventure where Spider-Man doesn't win in the end. Oh, that felt good. That's a great promo. Absolutely. So you know, one of the uh, other big appeals to that Shattered Dimensions game is that it brought in all the voice actors from Spider-Man's like history. Do you yeah. ever keep up with any of these other Spider-Men, considering mm -hmm. you're in a sort of exclusive club of some sort? You know, it's funny. I've, uh, I've spoken to uh, uh, Josh uh, Keaton because we work together a little bit. But we've communicated a bit on Twitter and just sort of texted back and forth. Um, but uh, no, I don't really keep in, in touch with uh, the other Spider-Men, the other... Uh, the other carriers of the lineage, but uh, mm -hmm. it's always a thrill to see new people uh, uh, become a part of that, that, that club, so to speak. And uh, it's just, I encourage, I encourage them to take, uh, to take the character as seriously as, you know, as they can, as hopefully as, as I tried to take it. And I guess more importantly, take it as seriously as the fans take it. Because again, I go back to this thing that if, if, if you don't dig it, if you're not feeling it, the fans can tell, and and then you're it, you're disrespecting the the you know that that experience. It, there's there's a there's almost a quasi kind of religious experience about about uh, like the cosplay and you know you know participating in this sort of ritualized mythology that people get into. So if you don't take it seriously, it's offensive to people because they take it seriously and it's a way that they're expressing these inner archetypes and this inner reality and these this inner heroic nature. It's how they access that. So if you take it seriously, man, they take, you know, they love it because because you're honoring that experience. And if you're just sort of flippant and there have been a few people who the fans have made it very clear that they didn't like what the person was doing. I, I really think that's the root of it. Uh, it was just a job. You know, we've all done that. We've all had jobs that were just jobs. Yeah, Spider-Man, not one of them. Right. <laughs> if you, right. and, if you, and if you approach it that way, you're, it's not going to work. So, yeah. again, it's just sort of my, my, my two cents on it. It reminds me of when uh, the Lone Ranger movie came out in the 80s. And the first thing the studio did was legally... Uh, uh, place a hold on Clayton Moore being able to appear as the Lone Ranger anymore. You know, they said, well, we got this new movie and we don't want you to be the Lone Ranger. You can no longer represent yourself as the, long, the Lone Ranger. Well, they immediately alienated every Lone Ranger fan out there. And of course, the movie was a bomb. Um, so it's, it's, I'm, I'm always amazed when people make that mistake, you know, that, 
It's a silly mistake to make. So this show is now 22 years old, and I'm curious for both of you guys, um, what do you think has changed about, um, I guess, maybe the culture of, of animation or the culture of of performing as a superhero or, or doing superhero type of work in the 22 years since you started uh, that series? What's changed? I don't think the TV shows are as good anymore in animation. I don't think the action-adventure TV shows are as good as they were in the 90s. Uh, I don't watch a lot of it, but I've watched some of it. I don't watch any Spider-Man shows, mostly because then when people come up to me and say, you know, so-and-so is a better show than yours. It's like, I have no opinion. It's, well, if it works for you, that's great. But, you know, I, I haven't seen the show. Um, but I have watched one or two of the Marvel other shows. I guess I watched a couple of episodes of Avengers. Uh, and I take it back. I did watch one episode of the new Spider-Man show. I watched the pilot because I saw it at a convention uh, at one of the uh, cons. Um, I, you know, they're not the same. They're just they're not um, the storytelling isn't as deep as Batman or X-Men or Spider-Man um, there's a I feel a heavy corporate hand one of the reasons why I want to do War of the Rocket Men is I want to get back to when I did Spider-Man after a certain point and really you know pretty much after the first 13 creatively I was in control of the show now it wasn't because anybody thought that I was terribly brilliant mostly it was because we had deadlines and people just stepped out of the way and said go go get the show done because we're really invested in meeting the deadlines um, but I had a huge amount of creative control and I remember thinking at the time that this was a dinosaur that that this was not going to happen anymore now if you do a Marvel show you have to answer to Disney you have to answer to Marvel you have to answer to you know whatever network you're on um, and you, you feel that heavy hand of a committee uh, in everything that they do. And I don't think you can have the kind of creative control anymore that uh, you used to. And I think the, the, the way you get a Spider-Man is you turn to one guy and you say, give us your vision. Now, I happen to get lucky. I won that lottery. And again, not because anybody thought that I deserved it, but it just sort of happened that way. Um, except maybe Stan Lee. Stan thought that I deserved it, but the rest of them really didn't. Um, but I got lucky, so I was, able to, I was able to present a complete vision. And I don't think you get that anymore. I think you just get a lot of explosions and you get a lot of, a lot of characters running around and then everybody sits back and says, okay, now, now we're going to sell some toys. And that's pretty much where it stands. I, I, would say that, uh, I, I would say that the risk of sounding pedantic, I'll take that risk, uh, there's an emphasis on, or I should put it this way, snippets of scenarios are not stories. Mm. <laughs> mm. I guess that's just the way I'd put it. Well, I, I feel that way about a lot a lot of these things now. It's, I think that that mentality has bled into the comics, and as the Marvel studio pictures get more successful, I think they're not telling stories anymore. It's like It's like hangout time. With characters, and, and right. that can be fun, but at a certain point you want some kind of depth to it. Um, yeah. I almost wasn't the guy to do Spider-Man. You know, they spent the first 13 episodes trying to figure out how to fire me. Um, and I just hung on because I happened to be pretty good politically. 
um, and and then managed to get. My deal was I was signed on for 13, and then they could get rid of me, and then they had to dis- determine after the 13 after the first 13 whether or not they were going to keep me for the remainder of the series. At one point in, during that first 13, I had emptied out my office. I was so fired, it was ridiculous. Chris, you never knew about any of this. No. Uh, no, I, I, was, I was fired. I was completely fired. I got a call from uh, Stanley's secretary, Pam, who was a friend of mine, and she said, do you know what they're doing right now? And I said, no, what? And he said, they are interviewing your replacement. I even know the name of my replacement. Um, and then I did a little finagling, and, and I managed to hang on, uh, and I got that taken care of. And then by the time the first 13, you know, by the time the signing arrived, because that was maybe around episode five, by the time we got to the end of the 13, everybody had calmed down, and, and I, did a little, I did a little bit of finagling, and I got myself signed on. So, you know, I mean, getting these gigs is not easy. Keeping these gigs is not easy, and it has nothing to do with, with, uh, with uh, how good you are. This might be straying from topic, but I'm curious what you guys think about it. You know, a lot of it seems a lot of our culture, and you guys go to all these comic cons and stuff. You know, I, I'm beginning to feel um, more and more alienated when I go to comic cons as this kind of uh, umbrella widens. And, and not to say that people shouldn't be welcome into the umbrella, but they become less and less about actual comic books. Um, and, and the, the medium that started it. And I'm curious, you're saying, you know, these cartoons are kind of becoming, you know, by committee and, and maybe a little soulless. So much of our pop culture is nostalgia-driven now. What happens when we don't have nostalgia anymore for anything? What are, what are we going to pull from? Are we going to have to be creative again? Well, the myths are eternal. They, they, they address fundamental questions of the human condition so they can't go away. They'll be reinvented. They'll be restated. They will be reinvigorated because the human psyche demands it. So if, uh, if whatever vehicle which is providing that, that nourishment to the soul becomes corrupted, uh, then it will be discarded in favor of something that does fulfill that human need. I'm just trying to figure out when it is that Chris Barnes became more eloquent than me. <laughs> Well, I'm going to take it to a more base question. Chris, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but you're currently the only person to specifically be hired to play the superior Spider-Man in any medium. And I'm not sure what kind of information you were given about the character before you did the work for that game Marvel Heroes. But I'm curious how your experience was working on that particular role and if you were aware of that significance. I was not aware of that significance. I've had a great time on that game. Um, we just did, uh, I just posted on my Twitter feed, actually. Um, uh, I, my Twitter feed is very funny. It's, uh, it's Eric Spider Brady. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, at Eric Spider Brady, which I, I get a kick out of. But uh, I, well, I was doing some symbiote Spider-Man. And uh, I'd done some uh, um, Iron Spider also, which was a lot of fun. But I was not aware that I'm the only one to do Superior Spider, no kidding. Well, that's that's interesting. I'm I, well. There you go. I'm another another honor bestowed upon me, which I uh, am thrilled to uh, to accept. Well, another villain for your villain column. <laughs> you know, so so there you go. So uh, you know, you guys are you know the reason you're here primarily, other than to talk to our awesome fans, is to promote this new project that you're working on. Uh, War of the Rocket Man, and I got to be at the WonderCon where it was kind of announced that you guys were all going to try to get 
the original cast back together to do this new production. And so I, I've, it's been really fun for me to watch the genesis of this project. And also, like John, weirdly enough, John and I have become friends in the two years since we first uh, since I first interviewed you. Who mm-hmm. thought that would become a reality? Yeah, really, no kidding. Because um, I was in <laughs> I was in Maryland at the time and and moved to California. And lo and behold, I bump into John every two weeks now. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I, I want. Can you tell us about this project for those who don't? know anything about it and, 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 and what the excitement is all about? Well, yeah, what happened with the um, anniversary was that we all came together and we were in a room together for the first time in 20 years and we remembered how much we enjoyed one another's company and, one another, and how much we appreciated one another's talent. And it just felt great. And one or two of us said, gee, wouldn't it be great to work on something again? Um, Now, I know a lot of fans out there would love for us to continue Spider-Man because that's what I hear from you all. The problem is I don't own Spider-Man. And when I say that, people say, well, then you should go to Marvel and tell them that they should do this and they should go to Disney and tell them that they should do. I can't tell Disney to do anything. Um, I mentioned earlier today that I went to an event a couple of years ago where there was a major Marvel slash Disney executive. And I went right up to him and I said, you know, we have the 20th anniversary of my series coming up and we really ought to do something. And he looked at me like I was crazy. (laughs) Um, So, you know, it's hard for fans to believe, but my series to, to Disney people and to Marvel people is completely irrelevant. Um, so, no, we, we're not going to be able to continue Spider-Man, the animated series, unfortunately. However, I just happen to be a guy that makes up things out of the clear blue. I develop ideas for other people as well as for myself. And I thought, well, I'm just going to come up with an idea that I can get passionate about and that other people can get passionate about. And I will simply use the cast of Spider-Man, the animated series which happens to be one of the most talented voice casts out there. Um, so I, I, I've always loved the old Republic serials. There's one character that when you show him to people, they, everyone goes, oh, I love that character. And that's the Rocket Man, sometimes called Commando Cody. He was originally called the Rocket Man. Later, he was called Commando Cody when they recut the old Republic serials and put them on television. And then they also did a Commando Cody serial to accompany the television series. Anyway, it's a guy who straps a rocket on his back and flies, and he has a very, very distinctive helmet. When Dave Stevens, the comic book artist, the legendary comic book artist, the late Dave Stevens, when he wanted to do uh, a Rocketman character, um, he went to seek the rights to Commando Cody. He couldn't get them, so he invented his own, and he called it the Rocketeer. And I think some of you certainly know and love that character. I'm doing the same thing. I'm taking a Rocket Man type of character, and I've created a whole idea around it. It takes place in the 1940s. I've done a trailer where it's very noir-ish, um, and, uh, and I've got the cast. You know, Chris is going to be the lead. He's going to be the, the main character, Skylar King. Uh, and uh, I've got Saratoga Valentine, Jennifer Hale, Rodney Salisbury, Mr. Ed Asner, um, Gary Imhoff, who was uh, Harry Osborn in, in, in uh, Spider-Man the Animated Series. So it's, it's going to be very 1940s, very noir, takes place during World War II in America. It's flying rocket men who are 
protecting America from flying Nazis. It's a secret war, if I may use that phrase, um, and it's called War of the Rocket Men, and we are crowdfunding it. And what we're going to do is we're going to put together a uh, presentation. So I'm going to bring all the cast together. We're going to do a soundtrack, and I've got great artists working on this, and we're going to do art. And um, we're going to put it together in, into something we call an animatic, and then I'm going to go around and sell it as a TV series. I'm going to try to sell it as a TV series. But in order, in order to do that presentation, uh, I am raising money on Indiegogo. Now, why should Spider-Man fans care about something that isn't Spider-Man? Because I am giving away such amazing stuff as perks. Uh, you're going to get actual pencil drawings from Spider-Man the Animated Series. These are actual drawings that were used to do the animation for Spider-Man the Animated Series. I'm giving away, I'm not giving these things away. You have to obviously donate in order to get them. But um, we're going to have uh, Peter Finds Mary Jane. Everyone always asks me. What would you have done if you had had another episode to show Peter getting Mary Jane? Well, I'm going I'm, I'm, to—I have written that episode. I'm going to make it available to you. So it's a script, just like every episode that we wrote. Um, I'm going to make it available to any, anyone who donates, actually. If you donate $25 or more, you get Peter Finds Mary Jane. Some of you might want it in hardcover with my autograph. That's going to be, a, you know, obviously a, a more than, than the, the base donation. But um, we're going to do uh, the, one of the best perks we're offering. I've got the cast. Uh, the cast has agreed to do phone messages for people. So um, you'll get Chris Barnes doing your phone message. You know, <laughs> you know, hey, everybody, I've, you know, Jim Smith isn't here because he's busy fighting crime with me. You know, <laughs> you can actually have Spider-Man's voice doing your phone message. Jim is um, definitely not Spider-Man. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's gonna you know the perks are great and um as i said earlier uh one of the perks will be uh, all this footage that i shot of our original recording sessions i have over three hours of footage you're gonna have you're gonna have the option to stream that uh online um it's only going to be available to people who donate and uh there are bigger things where you can actually be at the recording session when we record war of the rocket men and who knows, maybe if I gather everyone together and they're amenable to this, and I haven't even bounced this off of Chris, but maybe we'll record Peter Finds Mary Jane. I'll see if I can convince them to do that. Um, so, you know, you might find yourself in a, in a, in a room with, with us recording something related to Spider-Man, and that's history. Um, so it's, uh, it's a great campaign, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm figuring that everybody who's a Spider-Man fan should be involved in supporting this project for that reason. Okay. One of the things that's great is that the, the, uh, the show is – it's impo I think people would really dig it, not just because of the Spider-Man connection, but because the people that love Spider-Man probably all feel this collective longing for something like Spider-Man, some, with something of the same quality and depth and storyline. And this would be a new generation of that. So they'd, they'd not only be connected to Spider-Man, the animated series, in, in all of those ways that John just talked about, but they'd also be part of creating something new, a new incarnation, which, which continues that, uh, that legacy of, of storytelling. And that's a really fun, uh, exciting uh, uh, new, new project to be a part of. That's one of the reasons I'm so excited to be a part of it, is that there's nothing like it out there. And I think it would it would fill this need uh, that a lot of people feel, especially people of the generation who grew up 
watching Spider-Man. They want something like that and, uh, and to share even with their kids. And so I think it would be a really uh, just a really great thing to be a part of just in, in every way. And I love that you're going back to these serials. You know, yeah. the, the appeal of something like Star Wars is that it takes something like Joseph Campbell, you know, Hero of a Thousand Faces, and applies it to this kind of uh, like a rough uh, a, a storytelling, you know, that used to come before another movie, you know. And there's a charm that's just built into that automatically. And when you give it the triple A you know, stamp, you give it all, all you've got, mm. it really allows what the heart that was there to really come forward. And, and, and I, I love everything I've seen so far. I'm particularly in love with the Nazis uh, and their design because <laughs> yes. they, look, they look like Darth Vader with wings, and, and, and I'm all about that. It, well, you know, it's also it's particularly socially relevant, too. I mean, people think that, you know, Nazism and... and Fascism in general is a thing of the past. Just look around you. Look at the look at what's going on in our in our world. I mean, it's it's supremely relevant. Good versus evil is very relevant. It is very modern. It's very current. And yeah. uh, I think it'd be great to have a story that reminds us of that. You know, it's the best of all worlds. It's it's the best of '90s uh, action adventure animation, which I don't think you can find anymore except in reruns. Um, it's the best of the serials. Uh, it's it's the best of the whole kind of noir concept of things. But there's a you know there will be a twist. There will be new ways of looking at things. Um, I mentioned I've mentioned in the past that the leader of the Rocket Men is actually a woman, and she's a very well known woman, a very well known character in history. I'm not going to tell you who she is. But um, there is a trailer. You can take a look at it. It's, it's very, uh, I think it's very well done. And by that, I'm not complimenting myself. I'm complimenting my artists. I have three great artists involved in this project. One is Del Barris, who did all the great promotional artwork for Spider-Man, the animated series, 20 years ago. Um, he and I remain very good friends. My other artist is a brilliant artist named Frank Grau. And Frank is actually the one who designed those Nazi costumes that you like so much, Dan. Um, I, I would say that I would buy an image of the Nazi costumes to hang in my house, but I feel like that would raise some serious eyebrows. <laughs> well, well, let's be honest. The fascists always had the best, you know, <laughs> sense of style. That, that's true. They, they always had the best go. costumes, damn them. That splash of red on the sleeves is, oh, you know, just the it, best. It, it gets back to that classy villain thing. I hear uh, a good part of the portion of this country in the next year is going to be wearing some of those. Probably, yes. We might be timely in a whole way that we're not really wanting. Um, anyway, Frank's done some wonderful work, and he's the other. He's another artist on this. Uh, and also Des Taylor. Des is an artist. I met him on Facebook because I fell immediately in love with his art. So I would urge everybody to Google Des Taylor, D-E-S-T-A-Y-L-O-R. Uh, he's London-based. We met online. We met face-to-face -face at, at the San Diego Comic-Con. He and I hit it off really well. No sooner did he finish the artwork for War of the Rocket Men, which I commissioned, but he then took off as being a TV star in the UK. He hosts his own TV show. He's one of three hosts of a TV show that um, does uh, broad, sort of broadcasting about fandom in the DC universe. So... Um, He's really a powerhouse, and I'm very lucky to have him attached and, and very lucky to know him as a friend. It's, it's a fantastic project, and 
it's exactly if you're looking for action adventure, if you loved Spider-Man, if you love the cast of Spider-Man, if you want to hear Chris Barnes be a hero again, uh, if you want to put these people to work, um, this is this is a great project. Oh, and Peter finds Mary Jane. So, yes, I wrote that script. I've done a whole bunch of audio promos, one of which is sort of the beginning of that script, which uh, Chris and Saratoga Ballantyne uh, were involved in. Um, and uh, I also had a wonderful actress by the name of Karen Kaler playing Madam Webb. So if you want to hear the beginning of that story, that's our very first audio promo. I've done four promos so far. I've probably got about four more to go. They're, some of them are very funny, and they all have the cast of Spider-Man, the animated series in them. So if you're a fan, you should definitely, definitely look for those, and those are free. Those are available on YouTube for you to download or for you to stream. Um, Final thing, website for War of the Rocket Men is www.waroftherocketmen, all one word, waroftherocketmen.com. That's where you can find out the information about the crowdfunding campaign. And I'll include all this information in the show notes. So if you're listening, just look at the show notes, and uh, you'll have a link right there to go check it out. And again, on top of all them, I encourage you to go check it out and donate. I've donated myself, and it's worth it just to go and see the video that you made, John, with you walking on the ceiling. Uh, That's a ton (laughs) of fun. And and, uh, and that was – yeah, that made my day. So (laughs) – I, I can't encourage you guys enough. If you've enjoyed the two interviews that we've done, you know, uh, over the past couple of years, you know, I, I think, you know, you're going to enjoy everything else that they've got planned uh, uh, for this series. So I'm excited. Well, I am too. And, and thank you, Dan, for having us on uh, and having me on again the second time. Who would have thought that there could be anything more that we could talk about after my epic five-hour interview in the in the first show. Um, but thank you very much for having us both on. And, uh, and Chris, thank you for doing this. As always, I, I always feel like I owe you so much. So I oh, greatly no. appreciate it's it. The other way around. Th- thank you so much uh, for uh, involving me in, in, in this project. And, and thanks for uh, the interview. And uh, this was just a lot of fun. And uh, I look forward to doing more of them and, and continuing this wonderful journey. Yeah. Great. Well, thanks again, guys. And uh, good luck with your campaign. Okay, thanks, man. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. again to John and Chris for joining me for this episode. I always love talking to them and hope that they can come back for another round of questioning. Next week on the show, I'll be rejoined by my co-host Mark, and we'll be discussing our spoilery thoughts on Captain America Civil War, so be sure to subscribe and join us for that conversation. Of course, you can find all of our new Amazing Spider Talk and our very, very old Superior Spider Talk podcasts over at SuperiorSpiderTalk.com or find us on iTunes and Stitcher and Google Play by searching for Amazing Spider Talk. And if you do, please be sure to leave us a review as it's the way that we help our community grow. Also, be sure to check us out on Facebook and subscribe to our sister podcast, The Ultimate Spin, that covers Gwen Stacy and Miles Morales' adventures in the Spider-Verse. And most of all, be sure to leave us a voicemail with your questions at 9 Red Goblin.
Also, be sure to check out our friendly Neighborhood Spider Talk Members Club so you can get all kinds of rewards, free comics, and listen in to our members-only episodes. Thanks again for joining us this week, and be sure to let us know what creators you'd love to hear from in the future. Excelsior! that I never got any breaks. But now, after all I've been through, for once, I like my life. I like myself. And for the first time ever, I wouldn't want to change anything about me. Gee, you're definitely not the same guy I've been writing about all these years. Well, Stan, we all have to grow up sometime, I suppose. Even us characters of fiction. <laughs>